Wardcast episode 97. Go. I'm Dylan Alvento, and today I'm joined by Caleb Underwood, formerly of Oculus, currently of Raw Fury. How are you doing? I'm very good. Uh, I have to say, I listened to a few of your podcasts, and I love the beginning, where you're like, go. <laughs> it's it's like the best beginning to a podcast I've heard, so uh, good Thank work. you. Yeah, uh, that kind of came out of nothing, because uh, uh, Mason, who I originally started the podcast with, he's like, all right, we need a way to kick this off. All right, all right, episode number, let's go. All right. <laughs> no, it's good. Play a theme song, get it over with. But yeah, thank you. How you doing? I'm very good. Uh, I have to correct your pronunciation of my name, though. You have fallen into the trap that 99% of Americans do. Damn uh, it. I guess you don't have my name over there. It's Callum. Callum. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, I, Callum. I've been called like Caleb, Caleb. I was called Caleb for like my first year at Oculus by about 20% of the staff <laughs> to the point where the guy that was actually called Caleb and me would be getting emails meant from each other. And it, That's probably where it comes from, which is weird because... Because Caleb is usually one L, not two Ls. Yeah, and we don't really have the name Caleb over here as well. Uh, really? So I guess. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah we don't. It... We don't really have the only Caleb's I know are in in the U.S. Interesting, because I because I think that's a biblical name. So that's surprising you don't have it. That's true. The the biblical names we tend to have are like uh, you know the Johns and and stuff like that. We don't tend to go for the more interesting right. ones. We're English yeah. after all, so plainer yeah. the better <laughs> gotta keep it plain yeah, yeah. we should I'm just, just happy. we should just spend an hour talking about names this is perfect hell yeah man yeah <laughs> i'm just happy like i got the welsh spelling of dylan and not the irish spelling of dylan because god i gotta tell you i hate the irish spelling of dylan what's the irish spelling uh d-i-l-l-o-n okay yeah and then uh, the welsh is d-y-l-a-n but your last name starts with an i yeah it's italian so it's i-l but with a capitalized i it looks like i-i yes do, do you get trouble with that Oh yeah. Um I don't think I've had a single uh lease uh, <laughs> for an apartment or a mailbox that has spelled my name correctly. Well. I've had uh capital L lowercase l v e n t o. I've had 3 Ls. I've had I 2 Ls. I've had I've had every single thing. Nice. That's that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I I sign it and I'm like, "Well, th- is this contract legally binding cuz you didn't spell my name right?" So yeah, I get one alpha Callum, uh, but I have to spell it every time, but you just get used to it. Well, I'm sorry we started off by mispronouncing your name, Callum. No, that's okay. It's uh, Like I said, you're, you're in the 99%. <laughs> I don't know if that's cool. a good thing or not. But. Yeah. Uh, I feel like most guests I have on, we start the podcast by talking about their, their name. Yeah, actually, the <laughs> only reason I called it out is I just checked out, I think, one that you did two podcasts ago, and you mentioned it at the start, like, hey, how to pronounce your name. And you got that one right, so yeah, maybe maybe you cared more about that guest than me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, damn. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. That is patently false. I care about all my guests equally. No, no I believe you. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm good. I am very good. I am incredibly busy right now. Um it is, is, what is it, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I go to Gamescom next week. So oh, I am, right now I'm in the middle of finishing it Facebook and Oculus. So I'm packing up all my stuff to give back. I'm kind of finishing off any work that I have done. I'm also like pre-working for Raw Fury by uh, like pre- prepping for Gamescom. So it's kind of weird. I can't actually do any work for Raw Fury because I don't work there yet. But I'm... right 
kind of have to arrange meetings or otherwise I'm going to turn up on Monday and be like, hey, does anyone want to meet? So what's going on? Yeah, it doesn't really work like that. So I'm kind of doing two jobs right now, uh, which is It's especially funny from the email perspective because I would get auto replies from both of your accounts. Like your Oculus account is like, hey, I'm leaving. And then the Raw Fury account is like, hey, I'm not here yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And I have a huge problem with email actually right now. Like if we want to talk business development and games, it's like 90% email. And uh, it's it's just killing me. I have like, I have five usable email addresses that I check, um, which is like my Gmail, my own company, Raw Fury, uh, one that I use for uh, consulting, and an Oculus. And I have to be checking them all right now. Um, it's just a complete nightmare. And as you say, I have I have like auto respond on most of them, which is like. Hey, I haven't left. Hey, I haven't started. So it's it's kind of a nightmare. It, it'll be much better end of this week. I finish at Oculus uh, this Thursday, so just a couple of days now, um, and then I start at Raw Fury like that evening. I think it is on my contract. Um, so it'll be a lot easier kind of next week and the and moving forward. But the past few weeks have been kind of crazy. I had to give eight weeks notice in at, at Oculus, uh, wow. which is a lot, and it's it's in the UK specifically, like. I was talking to some colleagues in the US that work with Facebook um, and they don't have a notice period in their contract, which surprised me. Like in the UK, uh, it's very common to have a notice period. Usually it's between, you know, it's like a couple of weeks for like a bartending job or something up to maybe four weeks. But mine got moved to eight weeks a few months ago and I didn't really think much of it until I handed my notice in. I was like, oh, I now have to sit here for two months, Um, (laughs) which was kind of weird. So I did most of my work uh, kind of within the first two or three weeks and then you know, I've just, I, I can't just twiddle my thumbs. So I've been trying to like do stuff, but it's kind of hard as you're out the door. So interesting. Um, cause I knew, I know like the labor laws in, in Britain are a little more, uh, like protective on both sides or primarily towards, towards workers, employees. Yeah. So that, that eight weeks notice is, is on my behalf as well. So if they were to kind of, uh, to, f- I think if you get fired for like gross misconduct, you just out the door. But I think if they kind of just remove your job or something, then they have to give you eight weeks notice to, to basically go and find a new job, uh, which is pretty good. But actually, I, I, I was looking at Sweden recently because Raw Fury are based in Sweden. Um, I don't know these exactly, so I may get it wrong, but Swedish labor laws are like insane. It's actually a massive thing for a Swedish company to hire someone full time. Um, you can't really fire anyone. Like the only way you fire, if you fire someone, you have to help them find a job. You can't just have them with no job. So in order to get rid of someone, you have to like put them on an improvement plan for six months. Then you have to do something wow. else. Like it can take like up to two years to get rid of someone by the time you've decided that they're, that what wow. they're not doing. So what I heard they do is is like, they'll be like, okay, for the next, you know, from now until you leave the company, you're going to be the guy who like photocopies bits of paper. Like hoping right. that they're just like, all right, I get it. I'm going I'm to go find a better job for me yeah. to do something. I'll take the door. I'll yeah, take my leave. Than, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, Sweden's crazy. But then also you get like a year of paternity leave. Uh, you, you you know, the, the the laws are really, really good, I think. But also it's it makes companies definitely think before hiring people. France yeah. was the same. I remember when I was at Intel, uh, we had a big French contingent. And it was exactly the same. The joke was always like French get all the holiday, plus you can't get rid of them because the labor laws were just crazy. Like you, you have to go through improvement plans and everything. And I think these things are good. I would much rather be in that situation as a company and, a, and an employee than let's say America, uh, where it's just like, 
hey, you don't have a job anymore and yeah, no yeah. insurance or anything like that. You know what I mean? So I, I kind of, I like it. The notices over here are very much voluntary on the on the side of the employer. Like right. my current employer, my full-time employer, I think, is pretty forgiving. We had someone leave the firm um, a couple months ago. And even though they it was kind of like, okay, we need to let this person go post-haste, they still gave them like two, three weeks. Oh, that's good. To, to look for a job. Yeah, and what I've seen at Facebook uh, is is if if they kind of decide that that a job is no longer makes sense or whatever, they'll give the person like some time to figure out if there's another job at the company or elsewhere or stuff. Like as you said, I think it's up to the person. And again, like Facebook has a paternity leave policy of of sorry, that's that's my son in the background. Uh, a paternity <laughs> Speaking leave. of paternity leave, hi. <laughs> yeah, which I made full use of. So you get four months at Facebook, which is huge, uh, and that's in the U.S. as well. Um, obviously, which they don't have to do anything in the US. I think in the UK, you have to get two weeks. Um, so I made full use of mine, which was amazing. Um, but then, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this. Obviously, from leaving, I don't want this whole podcast to be about my, my life decisions, but from leaving <laughs> Facebook, I had to really, you know, Facebook makes it very difficult to leave. And, and all these yeah. companies do, like Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, etc. Really, they're all competing against each other um, in terms of like employee perks. So, in terms of you know pay and stocks, but even things like you know getting fed three times a day if you're based at the office to like getting your laundry done, like there's all sorts of insane perks that you wouldn't really think of that they just pile on top of each other, um, and it's kind of great, but it's also kind of terrible because you get all these engineers and and people leaving school uh, and going straight to work for a company like Facebook or Google and not really knowing what real life is like. So you see yeah. kind of a lot of entitlement. Um, and it, I don't really blame the people, but it's like, hey, the food was crap today. This is terrible, you know. And it's like you're getting free food like three times a day yeah. from a choice of like ten restaurants that you don't pay for. Like this is not a not a bad thing. But when you realize that they've never had like jobs, normal jobs, I guess I would call them, um, then it's it's kind of, I, I think it's kind of a bad thing. And you get into this bubble of, of you know, if if for me, if it was about the money or about the perks like i would never leave facebook there's just never a reason you can get paid more at these big companies than anywhere else um and i think that's that's what it comes down to like are you is that all you're focused on or do you want to kind of do something else and kind of go and explore other other opportunities so i think it's a good thing for these big companies to be able to do it but i also think it's kind of I don't know if the bubble's going to pop at some point, but these like big Silicon Valley companies just competing against each other, adding perks and adding perks and adding things. Um, you know, it's not really sustainable, but also it's really hard for other companies to be able to hire people who would go yeah. there instead. Um, well, I think the advantage other other cities uh, in the U.S. and around the world have is just the, their housing markets are a little right kinder. Yeah, no, exactly, and actually, like the the big Facebook locations. Uh, in the UK, it's London, and in the US, obviously, it's near San Francisco. I, I wouldn't be able to afford to live in either of those. Like, even with the Facebook wage, the quality of life difference that you're looking at versus, you know, just a normal wage is is yeah. that's you know that's part of the reason I was lucky enough to be able to work from home for Facebook because when when I started at Oculus, uh, Oculus only had something like between 50 and 60 employees at the time. I think um, they had no one in Europe, which was kind of the point of hiring me. So there was no office to go work out of, so they didn't care where I worked from. So I just worked from home. And then when Facebook bought Oculus, they had to kind of, uh, you know, they had to, to grandfather that in basically and allow me to continue working from home. I think there's very few people at Facebook that work from home. I, I think it's tens of people rather than hundreds or, or thousands versus the thousands of, of employees that they have. 
Um, so for me, it was okay. But, you know, to move to San Francisco, you you need such a crazy wage to be able to afford it if, if you don't, if you haven't lived there for a bunch of time already. Um, and that's like, if I move to the US, which I don't think is on the cards, I think it would be somewhere like Austin, maybe, or Seattle, uh, maybe Portland, like these other kind of tech centers, I think, that aren't just crazy prices of California. Which are also still pretty expensive. Sure. Um, given Seattle, I've heard Seattle's getting up there because Amazon's just buying everything and then Austin. Oh, yeah. Ever since Austin got Google Fiber, their housing prices have oh, started really? rocketing you, up. Where, are you, where do you live? Where are you from? I'm based out of Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Uh, so the capital of Virginia. Um, so uh, I don't know if you're keeping up with US news recently, but all of that neo-Nazi stuff. Charlestonville, uh, right? That was, is, that, is that it? Uh, Charlottesville. Charlottesville. So that's so in that's Virginia. About, that's about uh, an hour and a half up the road for me. Oh, wow. You're right. Yeah. I'm thick of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so depressing, man. Like my Twitter feed was just so depressing for like a week. Uh, and actually, two days ago, I was I was in town. I live in Newcastle, which is like a small town in the north of England. Um, and in England, like protests are like a part of the culture. Like there's always something somewhere, and it's just fine. Uh, usually in the city centres. And and a couple of days ago, which is on the Sunday, um, there were some people protesting. Uh, the airlines for um, agreeing to kind of fly out what's, you know, so-called illegal immigrants. So people would come over to the country and then the government would like use Virgin Air or British Airways to fly them back home and kind of deportment back. So there were people protesting that. And then on the other side of the protest, which only had around 20, 30 people, these are just small scale things. There was a group of maybe 10 to 15 kind of white skinheads um, definitely from the 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 kind of poorer end of the spectrum kind of what i saw from the the protests and and trouble near you was it seems to like be a lot of middle class guys like this was definitely from the from the poor end of the spectrum but they were shouting things like go home you know get your rights from home and i i haven't seen such overt racism outside of the specific planned marches that happen maybe once every couple of years we have like the english defense league here which is the the kind of white nationalist thing and and they do march every now and again you kind of expect to see it there but it kind of shocked us my wife and i to see it just happening during a normal protest on a random sunday in a, in a random street center like it's it's kind of shocking um so i, I it, it's it's super depressing kind of this stuff that's going on right now for sure yeah yeah especially with you know given who are uh, the person in our executive branch right now and then um, I mean I'm sure I think for you guys in the UK a lot of that stuff started up with like Brexit and and Theresa May kind of built part of her platform on that stuff yeah you know it's it's there's been like two mornings where my wife and I kind of woke up and read the news and cried and the first was Brexit and the second was Trump you know Brexit we had a, a you know my son was my son's about 17 months old right now um, and so we were like, what are we bringing him up into, you know? And the game with Trump, we're like, what sort of world is this going to be for him to grow up in? Um, especially Brexit. Brexit is just heartbreaking. Um, like the, you know, something Americans and, and English people often comment on is, is the fact that Americans, something like 40% of Americans don't have a passport or something like that, right? And, and to the uninformed, that seems crazy because you basically get a passport as soon as you're born in England. Like you always go somewhere. But, you know, when you've been to America and you understand the scale, uh, you know, Americans fly for seven hours and still be in the same country. So it kind of makes sense. Um, it's very different because in Europe, obviously, you can you can drive for half an hour and be in a completely different country with a different culture, food and language and, and people. 
Um, and I think the most heartbreaking thing about Brexit, especially if, if we talk about the games industry and, and developers, is how much harder it's going to be for people to travel and, and to work with each other. Um, you know, right now, we can jump on a plane to almost anywhere in Europe uh, as, as someone in the games industry and go see developers or go to events and, and, and really travel kind of very freely. We have a lot of, you know, digital nomads, I guess you would call them in Europe, who just just jump around from place to place. You know, if we lose those rights and it looks like we might do, that's that's a horrifying thing for, for the next generation and even this generation, you know, depending on how long it takes. Um, so that's kind of where my main concern is in, in the European games industry is, is UK developers being blocked off from that. So deciding basically to leave and, and move elsewhere, you know, move to the Nordics or over to Spain or Paris or, or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that's going to affect things a lot. And I, I, I think that's awful. You know, I don't know how we get back from this, basically. And this is the same with Trump. You know, I don't know how how we get, you know, it's never been perfect, but, you know, certainly, you know, three, four years ago, there wasn't this this as big a split, I'm sure. Maybe it, it was just festering, but it certainly wasn't as open in terms of kind of ideals and, and race and everything. So, uh, you know, I just kind of worry for how, how both countries are going to deal with it moving forward and, and kind of which other countries are going to follow suit as well. Right. Um, to me, uh, I feel like I take a lot of cues from things like um, art movements on this because if you look at art movements, it's probably a good uh, uh, measurement of history, how art movements are just a response to the previous movement. So you'd have like Impressionism and then immediately afterwards you have Post-Impressionism, which was just responding to that. And I feel like culture in general is a lot like that. So, you know, the Trump and the victory of Trump is kind of a reaction to the Obama era um, and kind of, like you said, kind of racist ideologies that were festering over time and conservative ideologies that just kind of festered over time. And then they mixed in with it kind of the uh, economic inequality that's been happening for a while. And, you know, Barack Obama tried to address one type of inequality with the housing crash and the uh, Great Recession. But then this other one where the divergence of lower income people and higher income people, which is a lot tougher situation. And for Trump's camp, it's much easier to say like, blaming on the others and that's why yep. we have economic inequality and that's kind of how brexit was too yep um and i just i wonder what's going to happen in like you know the next five to ten years if if you're right and there'll be a reaction it'll kind of dip back or if it's just going to get further into it like i just i just don't know i'm not a futurist but i just don't know what's going to happen um yeah. Yeah, i mean if we talk about if we move the conversation to games uh, and how that is at the moment um it's it's kind of interesting the moment seeing uh, and this isn't a very smooth segue, but seeing how... Let's take it, though. Let's go. <laughs> I've been looking at the Steam numbers recently for for games launching on Steam. Like, if we talk about a game like Tokyo 42, I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, this was a small game, kind of lovingly made. Uh, and I think it has something like between three and 7,000 sales on Steam Spy or something like that. And that just terrifies me. That's a that's a very small amount for a game that was worked on for, you know, two or three years, lovingly made, has the backing of... Uh, of a micro publisher, the publisher uh, is Paul. He's the guy behind Frozen Synapse, which you might have played. Um, so it's it's looking at that and a bunch of other games, and you look at Lawbreakers as well. I think Lawbreakers has like forty five thousand sales on Steam or something like that. And and it's just how have we got to the situation where 
you know, 10 years ago, it was a completely different world. You were completely beholden to to physical publishers who would, you know, and, and put you in stores and it was all about shelf space and so on and so forth. And, and the markets were very specific. If you had a strategy or a simulation game, you would find a German publisher and you would be published in Germany, which would be your number one market. You know, now you don't need a German publisher to publish to Germans because you just publish worldwide wherever it is if you're going digital. But the problem with digital is, is the the... the the shelf space is unlimited. So you're getting all of these games launching on Steam um, and a lot of them really cheaply. There was an article I read a couple of days ago about kind of pricing your indie game and it was saying that on average indie games are coming out at around 6 or $7, which is just crazily cheap for, for what they are. You know, that's less than a music album. Yeah. Was that that uh, Steam Spy article? Yeah, I think, I I think that it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, that's less than a music album. You know, and I'm not saying games are worth more than a music album, but they're certainly... That's just, it shouldn't be less than a music album. That seems crazy right. to me. Um, especially ones that, you know, two, three, four hours of gameplay and so forth. And, uh, you know, and I don't equate cost to gameplay, but there's certainly value in, in a lot of these games that are being sold for so cheap. So I, I think there's going to be a similar, in, in the similar way that Steam kind of disrupted, um, you know, what was happening a few years ago, that I, I think we're getting to the point where something is going to disrupt this in the moment. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's... Uh, you know, I, I have a lot to say about Steam itself, the platform, um, but I, I think there has to be something that that makes this easier for devs to get noticed. And, I, and part of the problem is, or not the problem, part of the great thing is how easy it is now to jump into game development, you know, with Unity and Unreal and tutorials and Game Maker and, you know, game developers writing blogs about experiences and, and podcasts like this. Like, there's so much information out there for a developer to jump in, you know, versus, let's say, like, 1987 when I was born. Like, to be a game developer then, you know, it, it wasn't... It was easy. It was bedroom, but also it was a very small amount of people who, who actually went ahead and did it, and especially went ahead and shipped a game. So I, I see us kind of getting to a point where, like, something is going to change at some point. I don't think there's an indie apocalypse or anything like that. I just think there's such a huge amount of content being launched that there isn't the, the, there isn't the market for it, you know? And you see a lot of these kind of less-than-good games launching on Steam and other platforms as well um, that just don't seem to have a figured-out market, you know? And the, 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 that's not to say that the niche games... I, I'm a big fan of Itch, EO... I guess. Do I call it itch or itch.io? I've never said it out loud, um, I don't think. <laughs> I usually call it itch. Um, I think it's itch.io, and then they mockingly call it themselves itch.io because people just keep accidentally calling it itch.io. <laughs> I, I like itch.io. I'm going to call it itch.io. Um, I'm a big fan of itch.io. I love what they do. I love their speed of of developing the website. I love kind of the, the way that they add features almost daily just because it's like one guy doing it. Like I, I really love what they do. Um, and I actually, I'm not referring to the content that goes on that. There's a lot of content that goes on that that might be played by 10, 20, 30 people. That's kind of the point. These are free things that people want other people to enjoy. What I'm talking about is the is the teams of you know 10 to 15 people who have funding from somewhere who are building these games that, that just don't have a, an audience. They don't have someone who who would want to to play the game. They haven't thought about who would want to play the game. But the problem is, I think, is the games that do have an audience but just can't find it. And and that's kind of I guess that's why I'm personally joining a, a publisher. Um, you know, I'm obviously going to say that, but I, I think publishers are certainly becoming more and more important. Um, not so much as gatekeepers of the games industry, but at least to be able to find those things that might not exist otherwise or might not get found otherwise. Like, I think my my biggest kind of... I have a couple of personal mottos over the, over the past few years of doing this job. One is, like, never, never burn a developer. Um, and I think what that means is 
you know, I started out at Intel and, and then went to Oculus. And in both of those jobs, there were many opportunities to get a game developer to focus on something that would have helped me in my job. For example, hey, Intel is launching a, a new camera. Can you make your game work with this camera or whatever it is? Um, the problem is, is if you do that and it doesn't work out for the developer, that developer's then lost six months of development that they could have done building a game. So from the very beginning, I said to myself, you know, unless whatever it is helps the developer, the developer has to come first and then they always have to come first. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is uh, I've forgotten the second thing, <laughs> which, which shows how important it is. Um, but yeah, no, I, I remember the second thing. The second thing is, is I think what I'm good at and, and the reason that I, I kind of did perceivably well at Oculus is I kind of based my whole existence on being the person that could make things exist that wouldn't exist otherwise. And that's either by finding them where they really need funded in order to be able to build it or persuading people to build it if they weren't going to build it already. And I think having those people out in the industry, uh, you know, Mike Rose just started an indie publisher. Um, I think he has kind of the same goal of to, to go out and make sure the things that should exist but can't because of whatever reason um, to, to kind of help those get to the forefront. Um, we, I've been watching a, a TV documentary called The Defiant Ones this week. It's about Dr. Dre. It's Dr. Dre. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's fantastic. I've seen the trailers. I want to watch it. Oh, you should yet. watch it. It's, it's really, really good. Um, and something my wife said to me last night was, was she, she turned around and said, wow, you know, always the people with the talent end up rising to the top. And, and it can be easy to think that because you see these people like Dre and, and Ice Cube and, you know, everything that went against them, but they still managed to figure it out and it all worked out in the end. But like the story that works out, there's maybe one of those for the stories that don't work out, there's like a hundred. So I think it's, it's the duty of the publisher not to just find things that are going to make you the next million dollars or whatever it is, but to find those things that you think should exist um, in a public way that, that wouldn't exist already. Um, and to kind of help those hundred people who might not be able to get to that point, who do have the talent, the creativity and the ideas, but just don't have, you know, usually it's down to the funding or, you know, they don't have the marketing ability or the money to be able to spend on QA or porting or whatever it is. Like building games is hard work. Um, you know, I do a, I do a, a talk, uh, every now and again, um, about everything you need to know about shipping a game, other than building a game. And it's actually a ton of work involved in shipping a game. Um, you know, I could, I could talk for hours about that, but it's, it's basically like you can be a, a programmer and build something, but once you've built it, you know, what do you do then? How do you get funding? Where do you put it? Who do you talk to? How do you even talk to press? Like, when do you talk to press? There's all these things that just is really hard to know, you know, and that's why I enjoy the fact that people are so open about this and, and go to GDC and go to these talks and, and do things like that. And that's and that's partially the reason why you mentioned it before. Why I want to do the podcast because obviously we have the we have the entertainment part where I do the roundtable of all the local indie devs because obviously any any town in America is going to have some sort of convent of of indie developers. But um, also having people who have different experiences in this industry or have seen more success than we've seen locally to come on and talk about it. And I think it's really important. Who who's local for you? Who's based near you? Um, I have uh, Will Blanton. Uh, he his dev studio is called Hyperreal. They released a game on Steam called Redshift, okay. Redshift Blue Ship, which is like a, a Pong slash Galaga mashup cool. game. And then everyone else is currently in development on something. Nice. And so there's like Sam Lotion. Um, from <laughs> someone actually told me last night, I was talking to one of the other devs. He goes, uh, 
yeah, I, I wanted to meet Sam for so long because he's like always at the top of the the Steam. I mean, the uh, Unity subreddit. Like he's always like <laughs> like his gifts are always always up there. So when I finally met him, I was like, oh, you're the guy. You're the Unity subreddit guy. That's funny. Yeah, um, he's working on like a little missile command game for uh, smartphones. That's cool. My I have a Twitter list, uh, like a private list called like games I like or whatever it is. Um, it's basically everyone that I've want to talk to about publishing their game. Uh, it has like 110 people. So this isn't like I want to publish 110 games, but these are like, hey, what's up? What's going on? Um, and it's actually, I, I was talking the other day on Twitter about this, and it's similar to, as you said, the GIFs at the top of the Unity subreddit. Like, if you have a GIF that goes viral, and by viral, on Twitter, a GIF that goes viral is usually like at least a thousand retweets or something like that, especially within the games industry to make its way around and for people to see it. Um, and if people click on your account and you don't have like a pinned tweet at the top with like info about the game or like the website in your profile, you see this so often. Like you'll click on someone's personal account, but that's where they post their game stuff and like ideas and things. And yeah. it'll just be them randomly talking about whatever and you have to kind of dig down to find the the, the info. And this, there's a lot of people, I assume, like me, who use social media almost as a way of scouting stuff out. Um, and it's not like I do it as part of my job, I'm like, I'm going to check Twitter now. But like, if you're active on Twitter, and I, I, I am, um, you'll see these things crop up and you'll see people retweeting and, and that's how you find stuff. You know, I'm in some really good conversations with developers who who haven't reached out to any publishers whatsoever. They just posted what they're working on and it, it just, it, it makes it across my eyes. So I think being active, like, again, that same thing, like posting to the Unity subreddit, like being active on stuff like that, not really a self-promotion just as like a, hey look what i'm doing or this is cool like that's a really good way for people to get places within the industry um yeah and i think people who are too quiet about stuff uh either they don't need a publisher or they don't need press or anything like you know the, the play dead guys with the inside or or something like that you know they're, they're just going to build that game turtle up and then then launch it and it'll be great um or they're just naive to think that you know that's how you can do it of just be completely silent until you till you get to that point um but there's actually a really fine line like you don't want to really announce we had this problem at oculus right so uh and i have to be a little bit careful here um so at oculus we we and, and i certainly signed up a lot of games uh and, and paid a lot of money to a lot of developers some of those deals involved some exclusivity um we had a rule where if the game had already been announced for multiple platforms like Vive or PSVR, like we couldn't do a deal with them that included exclusivity because then what you're doing as a platform is you're saying, hey, this game is going to exist for X, Y, and Z, but actually we're going to go pay them and then it's only going to work for X. Um, and that's never what we wanted to do. I think people rarely do that. Like you don't go out looking for a game to be exclusive. I, I think the consoles might do that for various reasons, but at Oculus, it was like, it was never that. All we wanted was the games that we would spend a bunch of money on is to have a short window where our marketing guys could really push it and not get worried that people would go and buy it from another store or for another headset. Um, so if you, if the games had like, kind of blown their load too early, I guess, and talked about what platforms and what date. Like, it makes it very hard for a publisher or anyone to come in and, like, put their stamp on it. Um, right. So it's kind of... There's a super fine line that I don't really know if I can quantify it. I'd, I'd actually love to spend some time figuring that out about, like, how open you should be without uh, actually just kind of announcing everything and, and making it impossible for someone to get involved. Um, you know, it's similar. I had someone reach out to me the other day to help publish in their game, and so I asked for some details, and the game is already out in early access, um, and I was like, I can't, I can't do anything with this. Like, we can't help you shape development. We can't help you launch. We, you know, it's just too late at that point. Um, and kind of on the flip side, 
you know, just having an idea and a pitch on paper is just too early. Like I love to see prototypes or something in my hand that I can play. Um, and that's kind of how Raw Fury works. Like the whole team plays something. I think there's like nine or 10 people at the company now. Whole team plays it. If everyone's like, this is awesome, then we move the conversation to the next step. And, and that's, I think, how you have to be as a small company like that. Um, so that's, so, so yeah, there's a lot of, a, there's a lot of pitfalls for a dev in terms of how to even get a publisher or how to, to, to get that game in front of a platform without kind of falling into these traps. Yeah, that I th- feel like like figuring out like when like that vagueness with like talking about specific plans or release dates and stuff like that kind of goes in in line with like the vagueness of like what's the proper price point. Oh man, price points. We had we had such a difficult time at Oculus over the past few years on price points. Again, I can't say too much and and obviously this wasn't I was part of a, a much larger team. Um, when we first launched Gear VR, uh, we wanted to launch all the games at a certain price point. For those of you listening who don't know what Gear VR is, it's the the mobile version of VR that that Oculus did with Samsung. We wanted to launch the games at a specific price point, which was kind of high for a mobile platform, um, just to set that tone. Actually, we ended up not doing that because uh, I guess we just figured out that it was too high but the thought was there of you know how do we how do we stop this race to the bottom of a of a game um you know i had a developer reach out to me a couple of days ago um and that game they wanted to do like an enhanced edition of that game and do some ports and things and i had a look and it was 79 cents on steam and do you realize how many copies of a game at 79 cents you have to sell to even make your money back like that's crazy uh i think the witness made some waves when it launched at 30 bucks because um, it was like, oh, this small indie game from this perceivably small indie developer, Solo Guys, 30 bucks, that's quite a lot. But I think people in the industry were like, this is awesome, thank you for doing that. Like, We need to, to teach people what's okay and what's not okay. Um, and, and for an indie developer, it could be so hard. Uh, actually, the- we, we talked about that. Uh, we actually talked about that when that Steam, uh, Steam Spy article came out, because like, he mentions... Thecla, I think, is what Jonathan Blow's dev team is called, um, and so we immediately talked about uh, it, it. And then one of the guys, uh, Will, actually was like, "This isn't an indie game, or at least it's not how he would perceive it as an indie game." Uh-huh. And I'm like reading through the article, and I'm like, and I start doing some research on like what their budget was, yep. and it was like six million dollars. <laughs> A lot of it was funded from like the braid sales, right? So yep. like Jonathan Blow like used up all of his braid sales and then seeked out like additional funding. Yep, and I'm like. Dude, that's still indie. Like compared to like what AAA is spending on development and on marketing, like that's still that's that that's a drop in the bucket. Like I would still consider that indie. That might be the top tier of indie, uh, but I, I still consider that as an independent game. Yeah, that's very top tier of indie. Like I agree with you. That's not a AAA game. That's not a AAA team in terms of. I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, right? What is not a AAA team? But that's that's a that's a highly successful team but it's not the size like you look at ubisoft montreal like what 1100 people or something working on far cry like that's a triple a team you know what i mean um so i I kind of agree with you but i also think you know there's games there's games being made for less than a hundred thousand dollars that that go on and and have big success and things and i guess it's just what you want to get out of it like you know he didn't have to spend all that money on the game for it to exist you know but right. I think he wanted to build something of a certain scale and beauty and 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 size and and scope. That that's what he spent on the game. And I, I you know, I don't like puzzle games personally, uh, which is a big failing of mine. I just I find it hard to. I, I'm I guess I'm too stupid. Uh, the witness I I couldn't really get into. I like 
kind of point and click adventure games, the narrative based puzzle games, but straight up puzzles. I, I don't I don't play Sudoku or anything in real life, so I struggle with it. But I, I think what he achieved was pretty amazing. Uh and again, I loved the price point. Like, I thought the price point was, was fantastic. Um, but I think developers should also fight for the price point. I remember when we launched Superhot VR uh, last December, um, we wanted to launch it at a lower price than what it was because it was maybe just over an hour of gameplay. And, and the, the store manager at the time was like, hey, this should be, I can't remember, maybe 20 bucks, something like that. Um, based, just judged on, or like suggested what it should be. It's always up to the developer. Um, and, and the developer, Tomas, was like, no, this is a $25 game. And I agreed with him because my viewpoint was it doesn't matter how long the game is. That hour is such a polished, amazing hour of time spent in a game. And I said, this game is going to kill it no matter what we price it at. Um, they went out at 24 and they were number one for like a, a bunch of time on Oculus. And they're, they're still one of the top sellers on the platform. So... Um, I think it's also if you think you have a perceived value for your game, like don't let platforms or anyone talk you down. But also, like do listen to people who have who have a, a you know at least visibility on other prices. Like uh, one of the advantages of of a job like mine, having worked at a couple of of companies where you see a lot of games, um, and I'm going to be doing the same at Raw Fury is you see a lot of different ways of doing things. You see a lot of launches of of a lot of games. You see a lot of crunch. You see a lot of pricing discussions. Like you do this time and time again, often multiple times a week for different games. If you're a game developer, you might release one game every two or three years and you'll see other games launch, but you don't have such a close connection with it. So part of the value of having someone like me or, or other people even giving advice on the game, even if we're not involved, is is you can't you can't discount it because we've seen it happen so many times before. And not to say we're right, but it's it's certainly... You know, having some understanding of what other people tried and what worked and what didn't work is, is going to be helpful p- for people. Yeah. Uh, the, and that's the secret of the podcast is that, you know, I'm talking to people and teaching other people about their experiences, but I'm actually learning it too. So. <laughs> yeah, you're a, you're a developer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm currently working on a small, like, it's it's the, the genre we classified it as is puzzle runner because it's basically an infinite runner with some weird puzzly type elements. Oh, but, boo. Ooh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but instead of like controlling the character, you control the layout of the level. Okay. So the so the character runs, and then you use the thumbsticks in the current build. Use the thumbsticks to kind of open and close this window to another world, and it causes platforms to like appear nice. and disappear. So if you look at like the game Fru, I don't know if you remember that game, that Connect uh, game that came out where one person would play the character and the other person would like position their body yeah, to make platforms. I, I played that was recent though, right? I played that at a maze. I that was think. like a oh, year. No, I, I know what so. you mean. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Our game is basically that, but like take all the Kinect stuff out. Okay. And that's probably a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I just went to uh, Super Smash Con this past weekend, okay. which was a Super Smash Brothers uh, like fan event. Right. Uh, also like a high tier competitive event, which was right outside of DC. And this is like my fourth event this year uh-huh. showing uh, Peak, the game. And um, it's it's always interesting, like getting all of that consumer feedback, being like, okay, what'd you think of the game? You know, what'd you think about this mechanic? And um, it's funny because you know I want to start having the pricing conversation, right? And and asking people what what, what price would you, you think would yeah. be appropriate. Yeah, but they I mean they ask me first. It's like, oh, what price do you think you're putting this? And right now my go to line is kind of like, uh, maybe maybe five dollars, um, because like I look at games like Cannibal or games like that and look at the pricing models for that, right? 
but like given the conversation that we're having and the in the in the write up that I saw the Steam Spy guy have yeah. about like don't undersell your game, it's like uh, maybe maybe next convention people ask, maybe I say ten dollars. Yeah, and, and see what see. people say. Like five dollars yeah. to me is like oh a hot, you know a premium mobile game. I see. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like to me uh-huh. immediately. That's just low. And it's kind of weird. Like, we have to remember that we're not normal consumers. I am not a normal consumer. I, I, I am a normal consumer in the fact that I buy a lot more in Steam than what I play. But I am so apathetic as to price of games when I buy them. Like, I just if I see a game that I want to buy, I will just go ahead and buy it. And, and part of that is is you know having a, a job that gives me some disposable income. But a lot of that is just being in this industry, you just... You don't. I think you perceive things as being fine. If it's twenty dollars, great. I'll pay twenty dollars. You don't. You know, nickel and dime are the developers. At least that's that's from what I've seen. It's um, it, like with like when like uh, Tacoma came out, wasn't even a question. Like I didn't even bother looking at the price. Like all right, put that in the cart it. and yeah, exactly. uh, we're off. You know what I mean? And I, I think I think we have to remember that that uh, we're like, oh, thirty dollars is great for the witness. Maybe he lost a bunch of people who were like, there's no way I'm paying what I can buy Call of Duty for to play this this puzzle indie game, you know? And I think we have to remember that. But but what you want to do when setting a price is figure out not what number of sales you're going to get, but what is the revenue you're going to make from that game. And that's by getting less sales at a higher price or more sales at a lower price. I actually think from personal experience, like more sales at a lower price is actually sometimes harder to, to make the same amount of revenue, um, especially if you're at a super low price. Like if you're sub $5, that is, you have to sell a hundreds of thousands of units to be able to make, you know, what you've spent on the game. Uh, so that can be really tough. And I, I think developers have to remember that. And like I said, that's that's part of the value of having other people in the industry. Like I would, if I was you for, for your game, like I would, I would ask other developers as well um, and kind of see what they're doing. But you mentioned an interesting thing about trade shows. Like I have never, I've never done a trade show like as a booth like i've never shown a game at a booth i've never been the person like describing something to someone or, or whatever it is because i've never been in that role I've, I've you know i started out at intel i had my own games company but we never ended up shipping anything at least not to the the state that we'd want to show it at a booth and then i was at intel then i was at oculus now i'm at raw fury i'm i'm gonna have to do that at some point and i'm kind of looking forward to it but i would ask my friends like that i'd see the same people at trade shows all the time especially consumer consumer shows and i'm like why are you here like what is the goal why have you spent like thousands of dollars to come here and stand on a booth and and show your game to consumers and actually most of the time it's like feedback on gameplay and i watch people play and i i i you know i it's bug fixing and stuff like that exactly i think that's exactly that's the like primary reason i've seen from developers who get a lot of value out of trade shows the kind of the other reason is to meet publishers and press and things like that and that usually happens at the trade shows versus the consumer shows um but if you take your game to something like Rezd or or egx or pax or something probably you're going to meet with the publishers and things but also you're just going to have a bunch of normal people there i say playing your game and you want to see how they play it i think that's super valuable um but and especially in vr i have this problem a lot you know i would try a vr game and I wouldn't say I'm the expert on VR, but I certainly I certainly know a lot about VR because I was at Oculus for you know three and a half years. And I'd try a VR game, and I'd say, no, this is going to make people sick. And they'd say, no, no, we've been to, we've been we've shown like a thousand people at trade shows, and not a single person said it made them feel sick. Like this is fine. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like I know this is going to make people sick. And the problem is when there's like a 14 year old kid who's played your game and you're like, what do you think? Like very few of them are going to say, oh, that sucked. Or like, oh, I didn't like that. You know, some will. 
Um, but it's very easy to just get kind of taken up in that, you know, people are generally polite kind of way. You know, I'm at, when I'm at a trade show and I'll try a game and I don't like it, I'm not going to tell the developer to his face at the show. You know what I mean? I'm like, ah, that kind of sucks. Because you put them on a downer for the rest of the show. That's just not fair. You just go, thanks. That, you know, that was great. I'll, I'll talk to you later. I'm very, very honest kind of afterwards and on email and in calls. And I think that's part of my, my personal value is being really brutally honest about content. But kids and consumers at trade shows aren't going to be that honest about stuff. If they are, listen to what they say. Um, but it doesn't matter if... if you know, everyone has played your game and they all think it's great and things if you can't kind of replicate that outside of a, a trade show format. Um, that said, like if you point to something like Gang Beasts, Gang Beasts was on the trade show road long before it launched on Steam and every show that it was would have 20, 30 people crowded around the TV playing it. And you know you have something special there because you're just like, these kids are just coming back and back and back to play this game. Like this is going to be amazing. And, and obviously, I, I think Double Fine went and picked it up, but um like that's the other extreme is if you have something which people are just falling in love with at trade shows you have to kind of you have to take note of that as well yeah yeah that's a good point because you know i was i actually had the same process through my head at the convention it's like oh everyone's you know i'm getting a lot of positive feedback mm -hmm. and i have to say okay well, this feedback isn't anonymized right like there's very there's there's incentive for them to not say anything mean to not hurt my feelings exactly. like you just said um so I have to find a way to maybe it's through like a Unity subreddit, maybe it's through some sort of anonymization venue where I can just put it out and be like, all right, give me like give me your worst, give me what you think. Yeah. Or also talking to the thing, talking to publishers, indie publishers about it. Um, which I would imagine if those if if the if a publisher, like I've never sp spoken to a publisher before, but mm -hmm. if um I would imagine if a publisher chooses to pass, they provide at least maybe some sort of feedback. I don't know how the general practice I is. I don't know my, about that. Uh, I I have a lot of friends who who have spoken to publishers in the past, and I have I've been a indie publisher for minus two days at this point, so I don't right, know how yeah. much I can talk. But it seems to like not be that common to get that much feedback, and and I think, and I think the reason being is the same as what we did at Oculus. Like if if we'd get um, random submissions to the store at Oculus, right? They'd be like, hey, upload the game. I want to ship this game. And at the beginning, we'd give feedback. And the store team would give feedback. Like, this wasn't very good. You need to fix this. You should do this. The problem is, once you get into that cycle, like, if, if I if I looked at your game and I said, hey, you know, that was cool. And I'm, like, super polite. We all really loved it. But we're going to pass. You know, we didn't like the, the, the color and the audio wasn't great. Like, you might go back, change the color and improve the audio and come back to us again. And we're like, oh, yeah, no, that's better. But we don't like this. And, and like, I think as a publisher, if you if you if you don't have that gut feeling and if you don't believe in something kind of from the beginning, um, I think it's better to just be kind of just to say no. And I think to a developer, like don't always take no as a no, you know, for sure. If, if they're being specific, like, no, we'd love you to change this and come back to us. Um, or I will, I will, if I say no to a game and they come back in three or four months later and it's, it's changed significantly or whatever, like I will always look at a game again. Um, but I think for a publisher, once you get into the game of giving a bunch of feedback as to why you say no to a game, like a, that's a lot of time spent, B, that can be dangerous to the to the relationship between the two because the developer can feel like the publisher wants them to change those things. Like with that said, um, I kind of pride myself on responding to every email I get. You'd be surprised how many people in this industry don't respond to even Nelly every email I get. Um, so I'm when I'm passing, I'm hoping to give some detail, but it could also be 
can also be kind of tough. Like, it's not really my place to tell someone that game is bad. It's my place to tell someone why we have passed on it specifically. Um, that might be because we just don't like the game. But then also that doesn't mean other people don't like the game. So as you can see, it's a really complicated matter about how much do you share, how, how much do you talk about. Like, again, I plan on being honest. Uh, I've always been honest for the past few years. Hopefully that'll work in my favor, but, but we'll kind of see. Um, I don't, but I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't go into it expecting a bunch of feedback from all the different publishers. Like if you do great, and they're probably the ones you want to work with who would spend the time giving the feedback. And that's certainly what I hope to be able to do. Yeah. It's interesting. I, when I was talking to Jay Tholen a couple of weeks ago, I also brought up the idea that like, uh, publishers probably pass also because it doesn't fit like their house vibe, mm-hmm. like their, their yeah. theme. Cause like, you know, uh, adult swim has a different you know, vibe than like, uh, then Devolver has Absol- a different tone uh, than, absolutely. than Raw Fury. Yeah. I mean, you know, Raw Fury is, is the whole, so the, the, the way I joined the company is, is pretty funny actually. And I don't know if you read my blog post about joining, but I, I basically had lunch with the CEO, uh, at GDC, Jonas, um, not for any specific reason, just we kind of kindred spirits. I thought, you know, let's have lunch and take some time out of the, of the craziness. And during lunch, we spent like an hour and a half talking about, how to treat developers, the the state of the industry, um, politics, kind of all this stuff, and and I left the meeting. I was like, man, that was that was. He talks like I talk, you know. That's that's my kind of person. And I texted him. I was like, hey man, I want to join your company. He's like, what are you crazy? Like, what do you mean? That wasn't an interview. I was like, yeah, I know, but let's <laughs> let's talk about it. Now it is. Yeah, now it was. I was interviewing you, um, but the the. You know, knowing about Jonas and Raw Fury, like, and I've known Raw Fury actually since they started up. I remember meeting Gordon uh, at Nordic Game, and I think they'd been going for three or four weeks at that point, like very, very early, um, just because they're good people and, and we kind of have a lot of similar friends. Um, but Raw Fury, like the, the, I don't know what it is I'm looking for at Raw Fury, but it, it has to be something that's kind of emotionally impactful. And it has to it has to just be something that kind of has that special source. And, and ideally, I want to publish things that just exhume beauty in some way, shape, or form. That doesn't mean it has to be artistically beautiful, kind of in the way the art style's done. Maybe it's like how the mechanics feel or the game flow. And this is all super fluffy stuff. And I think that's important. I think it has to be fluffy. Like if you go out and you know, you're going to focus on the Asian market and free-to-play games. Like, fine, you know, go and be a publisher that does that. But I think Raw Fury want to be the ones that just work with developers that have something special and and need some support to be able to rise it up. So I think you're right about kind of vibe of, of what the companies are looking for um, um, and what it is they want. And I think it could be kind of hard for, for people to understand what that might be. Um, but also, if you look at kind of budgets, like, there's a lot of different budgets a game might have and, and it depends on what the publishers are as to what budgets they give. Like I have no doubt there is an email list somewhere or a Google spreadsheet document with like, these are the publishers to talk to, these are how much they tend to give. Like I I, I imagine that exists in the game development community. Um, if it doesn't, it should. But I, you know, if, if you're going out to find $5 million for a game, that's a different conversation to finding $20,000 for your game. Um, right. And actually from what I've seen, it's kind of funny. There's like, there's the the hundred to five hundred thousand dollars, let's say, which is kind of managed by a bunch of of publishers. There's like the naught to fifty, which a, a lot of smaller publishers do, and usually the naught to fifty are by the guys who've like shipped a game that they did well, and they want to spend a bit of the proceeds on new games. And then like, there's kind of this gray area between kind of five hundred thousand and one and a half million, I think, where 
there's just not a lot of people picking up those types of games. More than that, and you, you're talking like XDev from Sony, you're talking like a Microsoft deal, you're talking like the bigger publishers, but think for these games that cost like a million, a million and a half, looking for that amount of funding, like it'd be hard for those developers to find that amount. Um, so I also think devs have to be smart in terms of of, of what it is they're able to get and, and what they're looking for. And how much they have to bootstrap. Yeah, that's that's another thing. Like it's... It's super interesting seeing how people get to building a game and what they're doing of it. Like, it's just, it's such an entrepreneurial industry, like, compared to a lot of others. Like, everyone's their own business manager. Everyone's an entrepreneur. Everyone's, like, bootstrapping themselves by doing something or something else. Like, this industry is so talented and smart to be able to do the creative side of things plus everything else that you have to do to be able to ship a game. Like, even getting a game shipped, I think, is a huge achievement. Like, I never managed it. We just couldn't do it. Like, we just weren't good enough. We were too naive. Um, but you see, like, groups of students shipping games now, and it's like, how are you, how are you so good at being able to do this? So, you know, I think it's, I think it's amazing how that's happening uh, and, yeah. and how people are able to just to get the funds to be able to afford it. Maybe that's like begging and borrowing a family. Maybe that's having a part-time job, like whatever it is. I think it's incredible that people manage to do it to, to even get to the point of talking to a publisher or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, I, uh, I went to school for both computer science and entrepreneurship. So I was able to have kind of a formal training in, in entrepreneurship and business. Uh, which helps me have that kind of perspective in this. And, uh, you know, I see, I, I see a lot of colleagues that either kind of eschew the business responsibility and either don't pay attention to it or feel like it's, 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 a, it goes straight over their head or, or things like that. Or, um, the other, the disappointing side is like, they don't think it's, it's worth their time or don't think it's, right. it's, it's valuable to, to have. And then you see on the other side with the people that are like, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business student. And it's and all business. Yeah. Like yeah, I, I, it's I see business, business, business. Yeah. I see people coming through like uh like Y Combinator, the the you know, the Silicon Valley style incubators, and it's all business and they're talking about about stocks and investment and it's like you need to this is our mvp yeah, and here's our economies like of scale build something and our... first you know what i mean and I, I i completely agree um and actually i think it echoes business development types within this industry um like me and a lot of my friends in the industry people like debbie who's who's ceo of team 17 like mike rose who just started his own publisher like the devolver guys the chucklefish folks like these are people who first and foremost, give a shit about games and creativity. Like these aren't people who do business for business sake. Um, you can tell the people in this industry who do business for business sake, like they love doing business, but they don't love doing games. Like you can't have a conversation about, hey, what about this game? What about that game? Like they don't have the context. And it, I think it really shows. And I think it's a harm more than anything else, um, you know, as to, to, to how those people work and, and, and kind of the type of things that they promote. Every developer is just a profit and loss sheet walking yeah, around. Yeah, and it's just the wrong way to look at it. You know what I mean? It's it's that's how you if you approach it from that direction, like that's how you burn developers because it's 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 not always going to be like that. You know, you need to keep these relationships strong. You need to have people able to go on and make games without publishers after you. Like that's the dream, right? You publish a game, the next game they make, they don't need a publisher because they have a ton of money. Like that's that's the dream for us at least is to to kind of help devs get to that point. Um, but I think the like I went to to university first and did an audio degree uh, in music technology and innovation. The innovation bit basically meant just weird stuff like do whatever you want. So that was fun for a few years. 
like I think for my one of my final projects, I sang Happy Birthday, slowed it down by like five thousand percent, and then I I put uh, tape players around the school or the university, as I would call it. Um, and I had the teachers go once a day to listen to that part. And it was just like, whatever it was. And it was like, <laughs> I had no, I just did it. It took me like an hour to do, right? And I was like, shit, I need to, I need to do some project. And they loved it. They were like, oh, you've subverted all these themes. And uh, it was just crazy. So that was oh, kind of Sounds fun. like an art school. Yeah. I was just like, this is, I'm not going to get anywhere with this. So then I went to do a games design degree. And I was like even more useless. That was like, hey, let's let's talk about game design for an hour, or like, hey, let's learn Oblivion scripting set for you know Oblivion the game and all this stuff. It was just it was really bad, and that's part of the reason I've I've like offered myself up an hour a week to kind of do education, whatever that means. Like if that's talking to students, if that's helping someone with a project, if that's you know whatever that is. So so that's been going pretty well. Um, but I think my own learnings, like I'm jealous of you having done like a degree around business. Like everything I know and what I talk about is all from just making it up as I go along over the past kind of six, seven, eight years um, or from finding out from other people. Like there was a there was a guy when I first started at Oculus called David DiMartini uh, and he sadly passed one or two years ago. But when I started, he was like head of content or whatever that is. And, and his background was he had he had started up EA Partners for EA. And EA oh, wow. Partners were the EA uh, branch who went and funded just so many amazing games. And it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. I think it exists like in some shape or form, but yeah, not like Unravel. Unravel, I think, yeah, was exactly. like technically an EA Partners game. Yeah. And there's a new game by the guy who did Two Brothers. Uh, I forget what it is. They announced it at E3 and it looked incredible. Oh, the, the, the prison escape game. Yeah, exactly. Like, So that's kind of the legacy of EA Partners or at least the, the kind of, you know, what that started. But I learned so much from him. Like, I think the best thing I learned from him was like how to say no to a developer well. And, and honestly, it was just like saying no early and strongly and maybe giving them a reason and then letting them go on and like talk to other people. Let, you know, I've had meetings where like I have an hour slot in and after 10 minutes, if I know that we're not going to fund that game, like I'll give the developer an out. I'll be like, hey, look, so I really like this. This looks really cool. We're not going to fund it. Like I know that for a fact um, because of this, this, and this. Like if you want to keep chatting to me, that's great. If you want to just like, you know, go out and, and figure something else, do that. And I think from my own experience, like learning from other people over the past few years has, has really got me to the point of where I am now. And that's things like, even you know how to price a game like no one teaches you that right you just learn it from doing and i think if if you have people who listen to this podcast who who perhaps are up and coming in the industry or want to get into the industry like that's the main bit of advice i have is just to learn from other people like nothing i learned at university have i used since university like literally nothing i i, I don't have my notes anywhere i can't even remember what degree i got in the end i think it was a 2-1 because i started at oculus before i finished university so i was just like all right i'm out um, but what I used my university time for was to reach out to game devs. I went and did free QA on Driver for Ubisoft. And that was as easy oh, wow. as just like emailing saying, hey, I'm at a university and I'm doing games. Can I come in and like play games? I'll do it for free. Like doing stuff like that. And you, you mentioned like a, uh, a convent of game developers in every city. Like where I live in Newcastle, we have a few developers. So we have CCP. Uh, we have Ubisoft Reflections who did Driver. We have a bunch of indie developers. Like we have the Indie Stone who did Project Zomboid. I don't know if you know that game. Uh, Sounds familiar. It, it was like probably about four years ago. It was like the number one recommended zombie game for people who wanted zombie survival games. It's kind of top-down isometric. Super, super beautiful. And we have a bunch of other developers. And when I was a student, 
uh, a long time ago now, I I was like, I have to meet these developers. Like, how do I meet them? There must be some way to kind of meet them. And I'd go to all the events and stuff. Um, and I was like, I'll just, I'll make my own. So I, I made a Twitter account called Game Dev Drink. Uh, and I like emailed a bunch of people and it was kind of domino effect. Like one person said yes, so I included them in the next team. I was like, hey, we have people like so-and-so. And, <laughs> and I managed to get all these people there at one night. And, and me and my friend did it. And we had no idea if anyone would turn up. Like we had no idea. Um, and it was a huge success. We had like 40, 50 people there, which for our city is a lot of people. That's like every game developer, basically. And and it was just, it was kind of luck, but it was also just like, hey, if I don't, if I don't do this, like I'm not going to meet these people. And these, if I have the problem of not knowing the other game developers in the city, maybe other people have the same thing. And and like same reason for you doing this podcast. I think like doing stuff outside of just the normal day to day thing is not only like mega important for for you and your career. It's also just fun, and it it helps you meet other people, and it helps you do other stuff. Like I I have so much on my plate right now, but it's all being put on my plate by me. You know, it's it's all stuff that I want to do because I like being involved in different things. I like doing incubators. I like being a mentor. I like doing all this stuff. And and I think the, you know, I haven't been in this industry long. You know, I I started as an intern at Intel in in maybe 2013. So what's that, like five years, four years, something like that? Like not long at all. But I think because of my willingness to just say yes to stuff and and having a big mouth, uh, like it's it's kind of helped me along. And that you know, I'm not that confident a person actually. But I think if you're passionate about something, you almost don't really need confidence. You just, just right. go along and talk about it. I probably just talked can't... way too much, so I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's awesome to hear all that stuff. And yeah, I, I would agree with you a lot about how it's more about the experience than it is about kind of your formal education because um i personally a lot of my knowledge of this industry is from listening to podcasts so i've always wanted to do a podcast so i would listen to like the giant bomb cast or or um or way back in the day i would listen to the joystick podcast when joystick still existed right but um and that gave me the knowledge of the industry but from the knowledge of like an entrepreneurial standpoint i would listen to podcasts that are like way even older so i would listen to like podcast by webcomic artists okay and it's really interesting looking at webcomic artists and them trying to make a go at making their art and putting out for free online and them trying to make a business of it and looking at the parallels between that and independent game development yeah that's something seeing- i've missed I, i've never i'm so insulated in the games industry that i don't, I don't know how that works i don't know how what's the book writing industry like you know what i mean right, like exactly. what's the what's the the music the industry, music industry. Like? you just yeah. don't know like they have to be similar right and i think that's yeah. what you're saying like i just i have no idea and there's sometimes they cross over certainly with the game industry and the comic industry and things like that but it's just a whole different world and it's funny to think about like you in this bubble of the game industry like it's not very big and if you look at twitter like as a, a series of bubbles like it's probably one of the small ones but it's just it's crazy to think about other people who have these same struggles in other industries but yeah. they don't care about games they care about writing blogs or they care about you know whatever it may be um, yeah. and i think that's fascinating and it was interesting looking at it in it and learning like their top tenants where it's like all right you're going to make something for like 3 years and you're not going to get any audience any mm. attention anything but you just got to keep working on it <laughs> and so i bring that perspective to game development or to the podcast or things like that it's like okay it's not paying off yet but it will pay off down the line if you focus on quality if you focus on you know just keeping at it um eventually you're either going to hit a point where you will 
meet some sort of success or you'll realize that, hey, maybe this isn't for me and right. you'll move on and you've lost nothing in the equation. Yeah, I, th- I think with your podcast as well. So something I started doing recently and I've only done two so far um, is because I, uh, because I, um, because I work from home, um, I lose a lot of social interaction that you get from, from working at an office or something like that. So I put out a call on Twitter. I was like, hey, does anyone just want to have lunch with me on Skype and just like spend a half hour eating lunch at the same time, like, but whilst chatting at the same time? And I've done two of those and it's actually been great. Uh, and these are people I haven't really spent too much time talking to. And it's been fascinating. And it's kind of weird because you just look at people eat and you can hear the sounds of eating and things like that. But for me, it's like, you know, for your podcast, it's like even if even if no one listens, and I have no idea how many people listen, but even if no one listens, I think the whole point is like you you, you spend time talking to other people in different different things. You obviously like talking, and I, I think it's a good thing. Um, I would never have the balls to like create a podcast or like call it a podcast. Uh, I think that's awesome. But for me, just I, I'm going to keep doing these lunch things because I, I, th- I like talking to people and just hanging out you know and i think this is a good way that you've managed to do that as well whilst having it like be professional which is where i usually fail at yeah and my and my ultimate goal with like guests is to like go to gdc like next year or one year and just like see them all in person Uh, be like uh, (laughs) all right i'll talk to you over skype i talk to you (laughs) yeah man you should have ward card that would be good (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, i uh, gdc is such a special show for me like i have it was it was surreal for me the other day. So I was in San Francisco, uh, like handing a bunch of my Facebook stuff back in, and I uh, a friend of mine who has a farm down in Half Moon Bay, which is about an hour's drive from San Francisco, is like, "Hey, why don't you throw a barbecue and we'll invite some people?" I was like, "Great! I know so many people. This is gonna be fantastic." And I kind of realized actually, I know like so few people in San Francisco outside <laughs> of like March the 1st when GDC's on. You know what I mean? Because right. GDC yeah, is yeah. just, I, I, I could not see all of my friends during GDC. Like there's just too many people there. And outside of that, San Francisco just feels weird. I was like, there's a bunch of people here that I know, but I'm talking maybe 20, 30 people versus the hundreds or whatever that you would recognize at GDC and go and hang out with and, and things. So GDC is really special for me. You know, I, I see myself as kind of an international person in that, I have a core group of friends in Newcastle, but honestly, like, as you kind of grow those cir- those friend circles outwards, like, a lot of them are international and abroad, and they live in Sweden or Copenhagen or the US or, or Mexico or whatever it is. And I think GDC bringing all those people together is, is really special. I think the problem with GDC and something I'd love to change is the fact that it's in America and it's causing a lot of pe- problems for people traveling there. Um, especially with Trump and so forth and immigration. Like I know there was a bunch yeah. of people who couldn't get in last year and or this year, sorry. And maybe that can improve in the future. But I think GDC just in itself is is something that I will, even if I leave this industry, God forbid, I will always go. Like there's just too many of the same people. And that's what it feels like to me. Like these are the, these are the same people as I am. These just want to hang out. They want to like sit on tables. They're just, they don't, it's just different. You know what I mean? It's, it's people that are into the same kind of being uh and that's i think what gdc is for me um it has all the meetings i did like 60 meetings this gdc so it has all of that side of stuff but i love that as well like i love just working hard and getting through stuff and then at night you just hang around with your friends like i i think it's i think it's a really amazing thing yeah i'm definitely um next year is going to be my first time going oh man i'm definitely looking forward to it it. 
first, my first time was with Intel, um, and I did not know what to expect. I think it was one of my first times in America anyway, so I was like, whoa, everything's so big. <laughs> Look at San Francisco. This is amazing. Um, but now it's it's there are so many blog posts about your first time at GDC and how to approach it and, and things like that. Like, I, I don't know what my advice is. I think my advice is just to like say yes to stuff. Like that, and that's it. Like, don't ever. What is my best advice? I think don't ever hang around with people just because you think you should be hanging around with them, right? Or vice versa. Like, if you find yourself in a group of students and you're like, oh man, I should be over there networking or I should go and like hang around with some publishers or whatever it is. If you're enjoying hanging around with those students, just stay with the students, you know, and just have a good time. And I think GDC is one of those slow burner things. Like don't expect on your first year for a bunch to happen. It's one of those things where like you'll see a certain amount of people this year, then the next year you'll see a bunch more and it'll it'll go on and on. Um, for me, there's like a, a, a few things that I always do at GDC uh, you should you should come. There's on the Sunday just before. Uh, there's a, a a bar called the Sycamore in San Francisco. Uh, I think it's in the Tenderloin. It's kind of a dive bar, but it's 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 fun. What they do is if you order a meal, uh, you get unlimited mimosas. So about 120 <laughs> devs rock up at like 11 a.m. Now it started out four years ago with like five people and I've been right. going since then. Now there's just, it's everybody because you're like, hey, come down. So it's crazy and it's like a, a, a very dense collection of similar-minded indie devs. Like a lot of them are from the Nordics because it was Johan Torreson who started it. Um, but you have people like William Pugh, you have, you know, Robin Hanecki drops by, like you have all these names but they're not names, they're just your friends because they're people you hang around with. So that's like my start. I do that. Uh, I always go out for like an English meal, which sounds funny, but like all of the English developers who go out, a bunch of us know each other. We always make sure that we kind of get a meal together at some point. And um, it's it's just nice. Like I think for me, it's it's I spend my daytimes doing work and then evening times, I don't think about work. Like I almost don't want to talk about work. It's just about meeting people that you know and like. And I think this industry for me is special because the people that I work with often end up becoming my friends and that's what's important to me. But these things take time. Like it took me a couple of years at least at GDC to feel comfortable even. Um, so don't be surprised if the first time you're like, oh, that was great. But, or, or you know, I think one of the, the problems I had at the first one was I, I would often find myself alone thinking like, oh, what should I do? Or should I should I go and do that? Like just walk up to people and say, what are you doing? You know, do you mind if I join? Like no one who is not a dick is going to say, no, go away or whatever. And if they do say, no, we're having a private conversation, that's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I used to, and I actually, I usually do that with a friend just because it's easier. But you just rock up to, a, if you're at a party and there's a bunch of people talking to each other, like in little circles, just go and join. Like, and I think like once you've done that one or two times, you just don't have that fear anymore. Um, yeah. You just... You know, often it was kind of easy to me because I'd be like, oh, I work at Oculus. I'd be like, oh, Oculus, blah, 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 I hate Facebook. You know, whatever that conversation would be like. <laughs> um, but even before that, I'd be like, hey, I work at Intel. Like, what do you guys do? And like, let them talk. And, and I think it's just be very open. Say yes to stuff and just, just have fun. Like, you'll love GDC if you make it. Like, it's awesome. just expensive these days. That's the problem. Like, it's in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. The conference itself is expensive and, and so forth. So. Yeah, my uh, fortunately, my friend uh, Alex Rice, he uh, he just got a job at eBay, so I'm gonna maybe crash on his couch. Yeah, that's a great and, idea. Like the hotels, literally that week, just raised their prices by like four times. It's it's crazy. There's an indie hostel that a bunch of people play at, at uh, stay at, which is usually cheaper. Um, but like the normal hotels are just extortionate. It's crazy. 
Yeah, like you were saying before that you just meet so many random people. I know uh, uh, another developer we have here, we have uh, Moment and Mike, and they run Route 76, and they're uh, releasing a game. It's like a, uh, it's kind of like a, this is kind of like the go-to comparison. It's kind of like Windjammers. It's kind of like Windjammers' okay. S party uh, disc throwing game. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they they go to GDC uh, almost every year. And one year they were staying out in a line for like barbecue or something, a food truck. And they were talking to a guy next to him. And the guy happened to be a developer, Double Fine. And the guy was like, do you want to check out the office? And they're like, uh, yeah. let's." <laughs> so he just gave him a tour like the That's Double Fine cool. office. So like. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, that's it. Like I, at my first GDC, a friend of mine knew uh, Supergiant, and this was before they released Transistor. It was at the time, so they were working on Transistor. Um, he's like, "Hey, let's go to the Supergiant party." I was like, "Great, this will be fun." And then I'm so I'm walking there, and he calls me. He's like, "Oh, I can't make it. I'm in a meeting." I was like, "Fuck." And I still went, even though I, I rocked up and Amir opens the door. I'm like, hey, you have no idea who I am. But like, I know Ben. We were meant to come together and like, here I am and whatever. And that took like balls. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm I'm kind of confident, but that I don't like doing that. But I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm on my way. I'm going to do this anyway. Um, and I met people there that I still know, you know, and I, I think that's it. I, there was another time at Gamescom. I was super drunk. And this American guy joined our table with a with a group of other British guys and uh, and we were just we got on immediately. We were just like riffing on each other and and making like crude jokes for like two or three hours, right? Just you know hanging out. And then my friend comes up to him and he shows him his tattoo and he's like, "I got this tattoo because of the game you made." And I look at that tattoo and it's a it's a Fallout tattoo. And the guy I'd been hanging around with was Chris Avalone, who was like the writer on the original Fallout. And I was oh, like, wow. "Oh, holy fuck! You're like that. You're that, Chris." He's like, "Yeah." I was like, "But I was just." I was like, this is great because I I approached you like I would anyone that I randomly meet of just like, let's hang out. And it turns out he's this dude I've looked up to, but it's not this like, hey, I'm a fan, you know? So I think that's that, that was really cool. Um, with that said, I have never worked with a game developer where I like their game and not told them, right? I think you could be too professional and too businesslike in this industry. Like if you if you've played someone's game and you've, like it made an effect on you or you thought it was awesome like you should just tell them like no one's gonna be like oh man you're so unprofessional i don't want to work with you like there's a difference between like saying i'm your biggest fan and like following someone around or whatever it is um and just saying like yeah that was that was super cool like good job you know i enjoyed that game and then move on so um but yeah that stuff happens all the time especially at gdc like everyone's doing something you know yeah it's it's um and it kind of ties in what you're saying earlier about how like if you're at a convention or expo and someone doesn't like your game, they're not really going to tell you about it. Cause we, uh, we did a panel at PAX East this year, um, talking about like kind of hidden gems on the show floor, like oh, yeah. stuff you might overlook. And we, we highlighted a lot of games. We highlighted, uh, Ben Meyer's game, uh, the semblance, which okay. I don't know if you talked to him while you were doing your talk at Stugan. Um, but, uh, we would find games that we kind of didn't like, but we didn't like, Go on the panel and be like, "This game's shit." Don't look at this game. Yeah. Um. But we, so we were focusing on the stuff that we like really, really liked, and what was awesome is that it benefited the developers because we got you know reached out by a bunch of developers on Twitter, and they were like, "Hey, you sent a lot of traffic to my booth." Oh no way! Oh, that's that was awesome. really great. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I think the only time that I suggest and that I personally have like talked bad about a developer is is because they're like they have shitty ethics or they've like 
done something bad or that you know whatever it may be it's never because of that game like a game is a game you, you you shouldn't ever talk publicly about why something is bad i mean that you know that that said like have i you know i probably said hey i don't call of duty sucks since like modern warfare 2 but like they have thick skins you know with indie devs i think it's it's you can you can talk about why you didn't enjoy something for sure like i would never stop doing that um but I think there's a. I would rather raise other devs up than like sink people down if if possible. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, so we've been doing about an hour, hour fifteen. Do you want to want to call it there? I mean, um, I, uh, you, if you got more, uh, <laughs> you got more know. on you. <laughs> uh, it's just usually people are like, "All right, that was cool. I need to. I, I have stuff to do." And then they yeah, this they is my out. problem though, man. I have like. It's my problem in life. I I try and calendar stuff down so I get stuff done at certain points and it just never ever works out. Like if I get myself find myself stuck in emails or on an interesting call, like I'll just I'll just keep going until people tell me to shut up. Uh so Well we can keep going. I mean if you wanna talk about uh like what you've been playing recently, we can talk about that. Uh okay. So what have I been playing recently? I am such a shitty publishing guy because I've been playing nothing but PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds. Like that's <laughs> that's it. I would love to like call out a bunch of indie games. I haven't even checked out Tacoma yet. Uh, I haven't checked out Hellblade yet. Like all of these games that I've I've been waiting for for months and months to come out and play. Yeah. Um, I've been living vicariously through friends who've played them and, and people on Twitter. Like, and just I, playing some PUBG. I cannot stop playing it, man. Like every time I go to my computer, I'm like, right, I have an hour off or put my kid to bed, I'm going to play some games, like, I pick it up, and it's it's just so good, and and I, I, n- this is now the PUBG podcast, like, I'm going to talk about why I awesome. think, it's, yes, why I let's think go. it's good, and it's it's taken so many tropes and, and mechanics from, like, previous games that have done well, um, and just distilled them down into what's basically a roguelike without progression, um, and I think that's super clever, like, the the types of games that I like to play a lot, if I was to to kind of look at my Steam library, are games like Civ, games like Roguelikes, um, things like Rocket League. Like these are all things that, when you look at it, you can see that that is a session of play that has a start and it has a an end, and then it's you know with Rocket League that's a match. With Civilization, that might be a match that a game that lasts you like a month to play. But when it finishes, it finishes. And each new thing that you do is kind of a new style of playing that game. And obviously, roguelikes are the obvious one. Like, I have thousands of hours in Binding of Isaac. And, you know, I'm a big, big fan of roguelikes. Anyway, there's a new game called Dead Cells, which actually is 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 the one I've been playing alongside yeah. PUBG. I don't know if you've tried it. Uh, I uh, I bought it because I was a big fan of uh, Rogue Legacy. Yeah. So, and I heard some comparisons uh, to Rogue it's, Legacy. It's so, it's yeah, it's, it's I, I find the controls nicer than Rogue Legacy actually it's kind of darker it's grittier than Rogue Legacy um, but it's just so crunchy like it's I don't know how else to describe it like when you kill someone like all this oh, stuff just crunches the word. out you use crunchy <laughs> oh, no <I> mean, <laughs> no really not that pops, word you know? <laughs> Um, it is man it's just the, the audio, I think it's the audio it's the mixture between the audio and art it's just oh it's so good cool um, so PUBG for me is like every game that I play is something new um, and it's it's PUBG is like 90% strategy 10% like being able to shoot someone in the head before they shoot you and I think that's what I like about it like games like Call of Duty even uh, you know for the vast majority of players and people might disagree with this but games like Battlefield and Call of Duty and and CS 
and other games, I think are much more equal in terms of the amount of strategy and the amount of like shooty, shooty people in the face you have to do, right? Especially at Call of Duty, it's just you run around, round corners, and you hit people. Yes, there is strategy, of course, and certainly in the higher tiers of play, much more strategy than, than, than in the lower tiers. But for PUBG, you know, you can go so much of that game without seeing a single person, and you just need that one kill at the end of it. Um, but the whole game is a series of decisions. Like you have the overarching decision at the very start of like, do I land somewhere that's popular and either like fight my way out to kill everyone to be able to have all the loot? Or do I land like in a random shitty three houses somewhere to, to try and, you know, just be safe for the game. And I think this is why it's so appealing to people is because it's just, a, it's basically like, it's, it's like an Excel spreadsheet of decisions, just one after another with some skill matched in. Like, where do you land? Like, if you hear shots, do you go towards the shots or do you go away from the shots? Like, do you actively go and play aggressively to try and take their loot or do you play passively? Like, it's not just to the decisions of, like, which town to go to next and things. It's like, you know, do you want to stay outside the circle for as long as possible so you can come in, like, better looted than people inside the circle? And, and I don't know if they, like... You know, player unknown himself is is good at this type of thing. Like H one Z one, and there's been a couple of other similar kind of had it, but they were just pretty janky. Like they didn't they didn't really pull it off well enough. And PUBG is certainly janky. Like the car physics and stuff is is pretty fucked. But it it just so happens to distill all these ideas down into something that is just really simple to pick up and play. Um, but the the skill ceiling is kind of unending right and it's it just it's it's i think it's that play of like when you engage the enemy that's where like the better people will start to play but then you have like some twitch streamers like if you look at uh, there's a twitch streamer called break and nine times out of ten in a one-on-one situation he'll come out of it better right he'll kill the other guy there's another twitch streamer called sacriel who is yeah sacriel's my favorite so he's super good at killing people right i think break is much a, a better technical player than sacriel and they play together sometimes but sacriel has the strategy down like he is and there's another guy called vis who plays with break like he just he makes all of the calls he knows where to go he figures it out and i think like combinations of those things are what makes it exciting um i don't know why maybe my personality or the fact i can't shut up but when i play with friends like i'm usually the ones making the calls and things like that but i'm not the most technically gifted when it comes to like shooting people um whereas some of my other friends are so you know i could talk for hours about it but i, th- I think it's just <laughs> such a good example of of a game that is just a mixture of little decisions and something that is super accessible wrapped in this like hardcore style mode and also it's easy to watch like it's nice to watch and you couldn't invent this you couldn't be like i'm gonna make a game that's gonna be like number three on twitch like all the time i'm gonna make a game that everyone can play like that's super hard to do um but they managed to do it and i think they just like got a heavy investment from tencent like they're they're rolling in cash right now yeah i'm very curious how that like business relationship was established between player unknown and uh blue hole like I'm, I'm curious if they reached out to him or how how that yeah, relationship was established. Like Bluehole, they they weren't like this hugely well known developer whatsoever. Because um, they're Korean, right? Yeah, they're in Korea. Um, they have a couple of people outside of Korea, but like all of the dev team and everything's in Korea. So I don't know how that happened. Like I've heard they reached out to him and were like, "Hey, do you want to come and work with us and build a game?" But who knows like what's true and what's not true? I would I would love to know. Um, but I, I just think it's genius. I think it's working out so well. I'm I'm still playing the game. Like I think it's good. And actually what it's done is for the first time when you look at your Steam list, 
certainly in a multiplayer, like I'm seeing a lot of people playing the same game, which means that when I jump on, there's a lot of people to play with. Like when multiplayer games come out that I want to play, I'll usually play them for like the first maybe two, three, four weeks and then like drop off. As the player base gets like better basically and as I get outskilled or whatever, as people, other people start to drop off, like I think the amazing thing about Battlegrounds is that it's still in that honeymoon period of everyone playing the game and it's been there for like three months or whatever it is, you know? Like it hasn't dropped off. Like you look at Lawbreakers, went down from like 500,000 people when it was free to play weekend down to like 40,000 people. This is like a week after launch or whatever it was. Um, Battlegrounds still has well, had like the most concurrence out of any non-Valve game three weeks ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's like, like 500,000 or something. Yeah, it just it's not dipping down. And I think that's what's amazing. As a gamer, I'm like, great, there's people on this game who are still new. There's people who I can play with. I'm playing with friends I've never played games with before. Like, I think it's it's kind of democratized consumers playing multiplayer games. They don't have to like pick one or another. It's just like, ah, there's always going to be people on Battlegrounds. That'll go, that'll stop, but I think it's really special at the moment. I, I like it a lot. And, that, and as an investor, you're like, fuck, why didn't we get on this gravy yeah, train? Yeah, I know, man. Like, can you imagine the people who passed on Bluehole or passed on that game or whatever, like kicking themselves? But if I got pitched like some army game, but I'd be like, no, man, I don't want to do that. I want to make beautiful indie games, but that's, you know, it's probably not where the money is. So also super curious how much like uh, Phil Spencer had to fight to get that limited exclusivity oh, with, man, with Xbox. I, I, that had to be a bunch of money. Like there's, there's brick yeah. on the table, brick of cash. Here, let's go. It, it has to be a combination of them wanting to have one platform initially anyway due to uh, like servers and multiplayer and just like SDKs and, and submission things. Like I think they probably were like, man, this makes it easy for us. Now we don't have to do two at once and stuff um, and a bunch of money. Like there have to be a bunch of money involved. Like I don't know what or marketing or whatever it is. Um, but that was a good deal. Like that was well done by by Xbox. Um, although it was kind of funny to see an exclusive game for a game that's already out. Like yeah, you know, like every uh, and actually, Raw Fury had a game announced during the press conference as well the last night, uh, which went down super well. Um, so it's it's it, that press conference was funny though. Like they brought out a car in the first five minutes. They're like, "Here's the new Porsche." She's like, what the fuck? I don't right. know if you watched the whole okay. thing. So they were showing off Forza, right? And like yeah. to to do the marketing, they were announcing a new Porsche, and it was just so weirdly placed to have this car rolled out on stage. Like, what is going on? This is this is fun. And then like Sony had the the orchestra, and and you know that was just beautiful. So I I think they both did a good job at just kind of different styles of press conferences the the production that goes into those shows is super fascinating to me i know i know a lot of people are kind of like all right we need to move away from the big spectacle of the e3 press conferences but to me it's still like yeah i still watch them every year yeah (laughs) it's like the it's like the olympic opening ceremony it's like there's 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 interesting like yeah you can you can chastise them for like okay now we're gonna run out some business guy that isn't very (laughs) eloquent and say something and you could do better than that and like you can talk about Mr. Caffeine or whatever and you know yeah, all the trip yeah, falls yeah, yeah. that they've had over the years but yeah I still like them I think they're good all right let's let's wrap it up I, sh- I should do some real work uh, otherwise right, cool. I'll be sitting here for hours but but PUBG Callum's game of the year yeah uh, 2017 yeah, yeah it has to be man that Rocket League used to be my my vice I used to play Rocket League like every single day I haven't picked it up in a while actually I should get back into it but I feel like I feel like PUBG is this year's Overwatch, and Overwatch was last year's Rocket, Rocket League. League. Yeah, like you look at Twitch. Like last night, PUBG had something like thirty to forty thousand people watching PUBG in general, 
and Rocket League had 800 people. And I was like, oh man, like they were, oh, they no. were at the top at one point, just no longer. I still love it though. Cyan actually is going to make a, a racing uh, survival shooter. Yeah, I know. Imagine <laughs> if you mash those two together. That'd be great. Car combat game. <laughs> yeah. All right, Callum. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. It was a really, really uh, educational and eye-opening. I, I think I learned a lot. And, you know, this is stuff I love because, you know, the, the biz dev side of, of games is just as important as a regular dev side of games. Yeah, I feel like I just talked about myself for most of this, so sorry about that. I probably should have talked a little bit more about learnings and stuff, but I, I really enjoyed that. That was a that was a nice conversation. Yeah, man, and we can have you on again uh, whenever you want. Yeah, let's let's do it after I've been at Raw Fury for a bit. Maybe I can share some learnings for All right. like how to I actually I know what my do job it. roles are. I know what I do here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let me tell you. All right, cool. All right. But thanks, man.